Teenagers. I'm James Schoen. And I'm James Certin. Conversation, expertise and advice on the world and well-being of our teenagers. Hello and, and, and welcome to you all to Talking Teenagers. Uh, this morning uh, we are very pleased to be talking to Alison and Dina, who established in 2012 the RAP Project. They were, they were um, both Americans and uh, uh, previously lawyers and journalists, but they have got a real heart for the great work that they are doing. Um, hello to you both. Hello there. Nice to see you. <laughs> nice Good to morning, see James. you. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the work that you are doing with the RAP Project? I mean, it, it, it truly sounds amazing. Um, so the RAP Project, we go into schools and we speak to students and we speak to parents and we speak to teachers about helping our young people make wise choices, both on and offline. Um, we started out pretty much talking about personal safety in the beginning, when young people were going to go to parties and dating and music festivals. And what's evolved is helping young people make wiser choices and understanding how things like pornography and social media and 24-7 access is also affecting their choices in life as well as their emotional and mental health. Right. Yeah. So can I ask, what, what are the, um, you know, we, I've, I've got four children, you know, youngish, very much at the stage where they are, you know, online and one isn't always aware of what they're doing online. What are the big um, sort of watchwords or the big sort of areas that we really need to be aware of as parents? Okay, well, you, James, and uh, Dina and I, perhaps you two, James S, or you're both James S, James Certain, we're, we are parents of digital natives. Our kids are growing up online, and it's very important that we're not overwhelmed by this, but we have to understand that we have given these children an, an enormous amount of responsibility, which they have never asked for. Baroness Beban Kidron uh, in the House of Lords works very hard against, you know, on, on creating legislation that will prevent the big tech companies from mining data from young people. And she opened this conference that I attended with this line. There is no childhood online. And all of us kind of looked at each other in the audience because we never consider that. Anyone of any age, anywhere can access anything online. So we have to talk to our kids in a very open, matter of fact way, age appropriate, about this responsibility, about what to do if, if um, a, a hardcore porn video pops up, if they misspell something, about how to handle grooming or cyberbullying and engage with our kids about these possible scenarios and what, what their thoughts on it are and have a conversation. I think one of the interesting things is that when we, you know, we have the privilege of speaking to thousands of teenagers um, all over the UK and abroad. And one of the things that always comes up is they don't want to talk to us about this stuff, not us, Alice and I, but adults and parents. And I remember asking a group of young people, I said, well, what happens if you get a very sexual image of a friend, right? How would you handle it? And unequivocally, they say, well, we're not going to tell parents. We're not going to tell adults. And I said, okay, why? And they said that we blow everything out of proportion. We make a big deal out of everything. And 
I said, yeah, you're right. Because we don't know what it's like to receive a sexual image of a friend of ours at 14 or 15. We've got no experience. You guys have to cut us some slack here. If we were to get on the phone right now and one of our friends sent a very sexual image of themselves, we would kind of be overwhelmed and a bit freaked out, right? That's not normal in our world. So what happens is we see what they're getting. We get anxiety ridden. We kind of spin out of control and we put our adult perspective in their world. That's much more normal to them. So we as adults and parents need to take a deep breath and control our own anxiety because if we don't, our kids are not going to open up to us. Yeah, interesting. Ali, could you tell us a little bit about um, the sort of pornography um, side? I am um, having taught in schools and and run boarding houses and things. I, you know, I'm aware that what used to be a fairly sort of innocuous thing, and one could find the sort of pornographic magazine, and there was one that may have gone around the boarding house, and that was kind of it. Um, but now it's it's open and available and seems to be something that it's very much harder for, for us as adults or parents or teachers or whatever to uncover. When you refer to that Soul magazine, my mind jumped to um, silent movies because it's such a long time ago culturally, but not really. Um, okay, so pornography is a part of our cultural reality. It is um, 25 to 33% of all downloads or Google searches is porn related online. Okay. So I think we have to be realistic about it. And we live in the amazing United Kingdom, which is very diverse, different cultures, different um, values, different religions. And for example, pornography is haram or forbidden in, in Islam. And a lot of people who are very Christian would never ever admit their children would ever look at it. But the reality is, is that 80% plus of teenage boys are looking at porn and 65% plus of girls are looking at porn. When I say this age group, I mean 14 to 18. This is not to say they're looking at it all the time. It is very important in my opinion that parents with children aged 11 and above have the conversation. Ofcom reports that the average age or average Brit comes across porn for his or her first time is 11 years old. It's 13 in the States. They're pretty young here. And we have to explain to them that if they do come across it, not to feel ashamed, it's out there, but they shouldn't look at it. It's promoting an unrealistic sex life. It's theatrical. There's no hugging and kissing, and it can be harmful. You know, I've, I've done a podcast myself called Porn, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And my two anonymous 17-year-old interviewees said that when they first came across it, they felt horrified. But there was something, something niggling at them that wanted them to see more. So it's, um, it's not erotic, it's hardcore. And we have to have that conversation at an age-appropriate manner. And I ask all the students at every presentation who in this room has ever spoken to mom, dad, guardian about pornography? And when we first started doing it, one, two hands come up. In Scotland, funnily enough, very, very few hands have ever gone up. But they're starting to go up a little bit more, but not enough. You know, I need 50% plus. And, I, and I, we, we tell parents, please, 
not be ostriches and put their heads in the sand because is it is it up to the parents to to be initiating those conversations or is it is it is it up to the children to sort of say well i've seen because that strikes me as being particularly unlikely i can't imagine my children coming to me and saying well i've seen what should i do so is it is it up to us as mum and dad to say right let's talk about this yes there is the odd loquacious child who will say hey what's pornography but they are far between i think it is it is and it is our responsibility and we shouldn't you know preach about it i think that we should be realistic that it is there if your child doesn't want to look at it 100% one of your child's friends or people in their group or their siblings will be looking at it and that they should just be educated about what um, pornography, how it can influence your attitudes, behaviors, expectations, and body image. But there's TED Talks on our website that people can um, watch and learn more about that. Yeah, I'm interested, Ali. Um, obviously, I think a lot of parents that I've spoken to would be keen to discuss it, but they always say to me, but how? How do you practically sit down with a child, even though you could answer, um, in terms of sitting down and actually approaching it? Because it feels a very kind of uh, unusual thing to have to do, doesn't it? Well, as Dean and I, yeah, as Dean and I found out early on, when you're driving them to their friend's house and they're locked in the car, get them there. Dean, go ahead. Um, I've got three daughters, um, and you sit them down and say, "We're going to talk about porn." It ain't going to get in very far. They're going to walk out of the room. They're going to find an excuse not to talk to you. But there's enough sexual images. There's enough pornography that has seeped into mainstream media that our young people are exposed to that can at least start the conversation, whether it's music lyrics, whether it's reality TV shows. And I don't want to sound like a prude, but if you listen to some of the words that these kids are singing in songs, and I sing them as well, um, how they're referring to each other and the sexual acts. If you watch things like Love Island, where the whole point of the show is just to have sex and have sort of vacuous conversations, these are things that our kids are being exposed to and be, and then it desensitizes them to the next level when they do watch porn. So we don't have to just go into the hardcore porn issue. We can actually start having the conversations in a much softer, fluffier way, so to speak, by discussing these other realities that are very sexualized that they're exposed to every day and we take for granted. Yeah, I mean, I'm interested in, I mean, you mentioned Love Island there. You know, we had quite a few discussions about should we let our kids watch Love Island? My daughter watched one season of it. I wasn't desperately happy that she did. But we had a conversation. She said, look, I know this is just theatrical. I know this isn't real. I know this isn't what relationships are like. But I, I have a kind of underlying feeling that it's still, you know, it's still not helpful. And it's still kind of as an underlying. I, I wonder what your impression of those things is would you advise parents to just say no take it away do you do it in consultation with the child and try and you know have a little bit of movement or you know how would you how would you approach it um that's a very good question and we have a slide in most of our powerpoints about love island because it is antithetical to everything the rap project and the rap foundation stands for it promotes unrealistic body image and it promotes casual sex and obviously um People's intimate relationships are private to them, but we promote, we have several mottos, and one of them is friendship, romance, and intimacy. Not just hooking up on an island because you like each other's fake boobs, et cetera. 
you know what? But the reality is, as you know, as I know, as we all know, our kids have to work their butts off and study and achieve, and they are pressured in our system um, so hard. They deserve some escapism. And, you know, since this show came out, Love Island, teenagers have been exploding about it. It's the most highly rated show, at least it was four, three or four years ago. Um, but yeah, and, and so have the real, you know, have the conversation with them. You do realize that this is theatrical and it's promoting unrealistic body image, casual sex, which can cause all sorts of problems. And some teachers and parents say they watch it together with their kids because it opens up conversations. Yeah, I've heard that too. And I've heard some parents really talk about how valuable that's been when they've watched it together. And actually, rather than just banning it or just leaving them to it, to sit down and watch it together has been a really um, useful way of engendering that conversation that, as you were saying, Dean, is quite awkward otherwise, isn't it? Actually, conversation comes out of what you're sharing, I guess. You know, I have watched it with my daughter, my youngest, who's 17. And as much as it is the antithesis of what I stand for as a feminist, as a woman, um, it gave me an insight as to why she wanted to watch it. And then we could have a, she didn't feel attacked. We sort of spoke about things. I took my, I put my anxiety in check, which is not easy as a parent and had the conversation. Um, And she's more likely now to open up to me about those issues than she was before. And I think it, it's helped our relationship, actually. Can I ask another question about, uh, going back to pornography again, what are the, what are the big problems with pornography that I didn't realise um, when I was a, a child? Um, but it is that whole element of the addictive side of it. And, you know, I still know one or two people who are my age who are really battling with it. And it started at a young age um, when they were at school. So pornography, um, there's, you know, pros and cons to everything. It can help people release with orgasm. It can help people explore their sexuality. But each time anyone has an orgasm watching pornography, dopamine is released. And dopamine is the feel-good hormone. The more your neurons get used to that feeling of pleasure from this activity, the more they're going to want it. So it is very highly addictive. And I've spoken to very athletic, healthy 17-year-old young men who have admitted they couldn't perform with their girlfriends. And it wasn't because they were drunk. They researched it and it was because they were watching too much pornography. So the other problem about, and, and the way to handle that, and I, I empathize with your middle-aged friends because it's, it's, it's a big problem for, for so many people. And it's affecting marriages, it's affecting relationships, and it's affecting self-esteem. So less is more, I would say, about watching pornography um, and not to rely on it. Because, you know, I don't remember if you guys watched Sex in the City. I'm sure it was a big show in Bristol and Bath back in the day. But there was a a narrative um, in 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 this TV drama where the husband could not make love to his wife without watching pornography uh, to get excited. And there is, that, that is not an unrealistic scenario. So to sum it up, um, pornography can uh, help you explore your sexuality and can help you relax and provide relief. Having said that, it is extremely addictive. 
And having watched it for my job since 2012, I can tell you it has become so much more extreme and hardcore that I cringe and I'm a pretty open-minded woman. It is, and if I speak to any of the students, say in sixth form, they will say, you're right, it has gotten a lot more hardcore in the past five years. This porn industry, this multi-billion dollar industry um, is here to get people to be surprised. And it's, it's not unusual, you know, young men love to be shocked and have a laugh. And in order to get them to keep clicking, clickbait, they're creating more dramatic scenarios. It's very important when you feel you're comfortable with your, when you feel comfortable speaking to your own children to talk about the differences between erotica and hardcore pornography. Erotica is as old as humanity itself. It's discreet, it's suggestive, it's sensual. And hardcore porn, which is what we're consuming online for the most part, is close-up penetrative anal, oral, and vaginal sex. That's it. The thing is, we, we said at the Rat Project, we're not preaching morality, we're teaching reality, right? So morality is saying you shouldn't watch porn because it's bad for you and for religious reasons or whatever. But reality is you're not going to be able to have a healthy sexual relationship with a three-dimensional person um, going forward. If you're addicted, the only thing that's going to get you excited is one-dimensional hardcore images. And one young man, and there's, there's been, uh, there are more young men being treated for erectile dysfunction um, on the NHS in their 20s and 30s than ever before. Um, that's a reality. That's not preaching, you know, what you should be watching or, you know, what sex is. The reality of it is, is that they, there are real physiological um, uh, results of porn addiction that we want to try to help you avoid. I love that phrase, preaching. No, we're not preaching morality, we're teaching reality. I think that's a really helpful phrase for, for parents and for educators, actually. Um, and I guess it's, it's kind of beholden to us as well when, when we're talking about, we're, really we're talking about sort of how a lot of young men self-soothe, don't they, and how they are finding ways to combat difficulty or adrenaline or all that kind of stuff. And part of our job is to try and redirect them in terms of how, you know, how they're going to do that, I think. I wonder if we could change tack slightly. Dina, I know you, I mean, the RAP project stands for Raising Awareness and Prevention. Dina, your background's in uh, law and particularly around, uh, from in Brooklyn, I think it was sex crimes. If you're, uh, without freaking out any parents out there, <laughs> if, if you're going to use your experience to help uh, parents, you know, kind of think about sort of the wider society and where our children are going to sort of ultimately head to university and into life, what are the kind of key takeaways you'd want parents to know about and also to be able to, to talk about with their children? Alison and I have key phrases we use over and over again that we try to hit home. And um, one of the things is really important, mutual consent and mutual respect. And then for the older kids, mutual pleasure. And understanding what consent means and having the instilling in our young people to have the, self, the confidence to say no, to own their bodies and own their choices, to not feel like if they think, one of the things we say is if you think that by doing something sexually you're not ready to do or you do not want to do is going to make someone love you more or like you more or accept you more, actually it's only going to make you like yourself less. Um, and that you owe nothing to anyone but yourself. 
And I, as a parent or you as a teacher, cannot follow these kids around and physically help them make sexual choices, right? But they've got to look at themselves in the mirror. They've got to decide whether they're okay with what they are doing. We can't do that. And and I think because there are mental health issues right now that they're dealing with more than ever before, those struggles, the anxiety, the depression, that does affect how you feel about yourself. And I think you're more likely to make poor choices sexually if you don't feel good about who you are. So I think if we keep building our young people up and giving them strength and making them feel good about themselves, they're less likely to do something that they are going to be haunted by for years to come. Um, and I think what the other thing, very practically speaking, and I, again, I don't want to preach, but having two daughters at university and speaking to six formers, the amount of alcohol consumption that leads, and I'm not, that leads to making very poor choices, right? So one of the things we always say is you do not want to wake up one day and look down and say, who is that? What did I do? Did they consent? Did I consent? Because you cannot accuse someone of, crime, of a crime if you don't remember what happened, and you cannot defend yourself against a criminal accusation if you have no idea with what happened. And I always, I, I try to parallel, do a meta, I get parents ask me, or tell me quite a lot when I speak to parent groups, particularly of young women. They will say to me, you have to tell my daughter how to dress because you know what can happen. And I say, no, 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 no. I am, as a feminist, as a former sex crimes prosecutor, as a mother of daughters, I am not telling a woman how to dress. There is no correlation between sex crimes and how a woman dresses. Women in burkas get raped. Women in nuns have get raped. If you are wearing a short skirt, you could still defend yourself. If you're wearing tight jeans, you can say no. However, if you are so inebriated that you cannot protect yourself, defend yourself, articulate what you want and what you don't want. It is your vulnerability that worries us. So alcohol is not about moral choices. Again, it's about being able to make wise choices and defend yourself. So alcohol, especially at university, it is out of control. And, and that, that does really worry me. I read a report actually quite recently that suggested in the UK that when you talk to students individually, a huge amount of them that actually don't really like drinking or, you know, drinking games or that whole drinking culture, but they only do so because they think everyone else does. And there's a kind of a real uh, mismatch between what individuals are thinking and what whole sort of setups are done. And I know that drinking games and the pressure to take part in that is really quite strong, isn't it, at university? And, and as you say, alcohol often is, a, is, a, is, a, is the precursor to sort of bad decisions. Ali? I just wanted to add that, you know, alcohol is a social lubricant. It, it's been around for millennia, okay? It's great, and it has its place. But it's also a date rape drug, in our opinion. And we have a, a conversation with the students about rohypnol, um, which is a date rape drug in bars and clubs around universities and in big cities. And alcohol is a date rape drug because it can radically change one's personality. So practice self-awareness. If you're going to drink, Know how you how you respond, how you metabolize alcohol. Do you become aggressive? Do you become emotional? Practice self awareness. It's no coincidence that um, alcohol is is involved in many incidents of sexual assault and sexual harassment. 
and not to jump on, but at universities here in the UK and in the US, the number of, of sexual assaults and cases of sexual harassment are far too high. And it's something that we are both very passionate about reducing and um, training and educating our younger people in sixth form about what they can do about it. You talk about the, the date rape job and you, uh, date rape drug and you talk about um you know going out in an evening if you were to sort of make suggestions about you know sort of basic rules that you think your children should be keeping when they go out in the town because of course they're going to go out in the town you know what would they be um so obviously moderate your alcohol intake um drink plenty of carbohydrate before you go out don't worry about getting in your skinny jeans hydrate yourself with other liquids water diet coke um when you go out, we always say you go together, you leave together, you have a plan, you have each other's backs. You make sure that you do not, if you haven't seen Raf or Sophie, it's been 20, 25 minutes, go find them. Maybe they've met the person of their dreams, or maybe they're passed out in a loo. Maybe they're being cornered by someone in a, in a room they don't want to be with, and they're vulnerable. Um, uh, never let your friend leave a party or a uh, bar, wherever, um, with someone they do not know. And I don't care what you have to do to stop that. You have to do whatever you can to make sure that you guys stay with each other, you watch out for each other, and you have a plan, and you don't leave anyone behind. Because if, if something does happen, if someone's drink does get spiked, or someone gets really ill, or throwing up, they've been drinking, they are really vulnerable. I mean, and and you do not want to live with that for the rest of your life. And I always say, if you were in a vulnerable position, wouldn't you want to know that one of your friends was out there looking for you? So they have to look out for one another. And the other thing, as parents, I did a parent presentation at a school a while ago. And I said, we have to tell our young people that we do not care what state they're in or what they've been doing. If it's two o'clock in the morning, they need to be able to call us. And we will, we will always love them. Now, we may not always like their decisions. And when we were their age, we did lots of things that we ain't going to tell them about. However, they are in, they're, it's much better they get in trouble with us. Our memories are short. We'll get over it. We'll always love them. Then God forbid becoming the victim and living with that for the rest of their lives. Call home. Uh, just very quickly, we give to um, teachers resources, and it's what-if scenarios. And it's something that parents can do with their, their students as well, their kids as well, age appropriate. So this is an example of a six-form scenario. And all of our scenarios, by the way, have been given to us and asked of us by students. So it's our, our work is very much informed by the students themselves. So scenario one, I'm, um, Allison, I'm at a club and my best friend is getting pretty wasted and they meet someone and they insist on going home with someone with that person that they've never met before. What can I do? So I elicit answers from the other students in the hall and I get all sorts of things like, um, don't let them talk to them. One um, young man said, join them, which I thought was quite funny, but good idea. Take their photograph, take the photo, try to get the other person's name and number and address. Because sometimes as much as we want to stop the person from going home with a stranger, people do hook up. It's inevitable and you can't control what someone else does. You can do your best, but 
but make sure that person calls you if they do insist and says that they're safe. But there are things you can do. So it's good just to kind of create these conversations amongst the, the students themselves. At the end of the day, they're each other's best resource of support. Yeah, that's a great way of doing it. Can I just ask, because it's always interested me, um, you know, spiking drinks, is, is that just somebody randomly puts something in your drink or is it someone buys you a drink or is it a mixture? What, what's the most common way in which people spike your drink and what should, should, should your kids be aware of when they're thinking about things like that? Um, it's a mixture, unfortunately. It is, you know, I've heard of scenarios of um, clubs, bartenders being, you know, given a tenor to turn a blind eye to someone spiking a drink. We've seen videos of a young woman at a music festival who had no idea that her drink was being spiked um, until she played it back. So, you know, we always say, always bring your drinks with you. You know, don't leave them at the bar. Don't leave them. If you're going to dance, I know this sounds not very fun, but take it with you. The other thing is to have a reusable water bottle with a cap on it. So when my daughter went to Reading Festival after GCSEs, where I was convinced she was going to end up dead in a ditch somewhere, because as a former criminal lawyer, that's what I think everyone's going to happen to my, my kids. I gave her, I made sure her and all of her friends had a water, a bottle that they had a, a screw top on it. Because for someone to spike a drink, it takes a second, right? But they have to have the opportunity. So it's very, you can very quickly, if you have an open, cla uh, open glass, open container, to put a, a, a pill in it and walk away. It's odorless, it is colorless, it dissolves quickly, and it will hit your system very quickly. If that person has to actually unscrew the top of the bottle, put the pill in, screw it back on, they're less likely to target a person that's more difficult to actually penetrate the crime with. So whether it's music festivals, clubs, bars, however, it's eco-friendly, but it also can protect you. The other thing is people that we do know who've had their drinks spiked, and unfortunately we've heard, we've heard many stories, and I've seen it with my work, the, the ones who did not have a horror story to tell were the ones who had friends looking out for them, who recognized the fact that, wait a second, something is wrong right now. My friend is not acting the way she should or he should be acting. I need to get them out of the situation, get them home, get them to a safe place, get them to a hospital. The people we know where the stories have not um, been pleasant, have a pleasant ending are people who are left on their own and no one was looking out for them. So reusable, you know, a reusable water bottle with a screw cap on it, very important. Keep your drink with you at all times, but probably most importantly, watch out for each other and get your friend out of that situation if you recognize they've been in any way harmed. This is why we really repeat this, this mantra. You know, you go together, you leave together. Each one of us, I'm sure, has gone out in our day, in our heyday, and closed the place, closed the joint, because you were having the time of your life and your friends were like, uh -uh, I'm, I'm out of here, I'm exhausted. And it happens. Try to compromise with your friends because when you're on your own, you're more likely to be targeted by someone um, with something with criminal intent, i.e. roofie your drink or harass you. The other thing I just want to say is tell your, your kids to look out for clubs, bars, and restaurants when we can go again um, that have the little ask for Angela and ask for Clive stickers in their windows because um, if you're being... Um, ostracized and you're feeling you're under attack for being a homosexual or bisexual or if you're being sexually harassed you tell the bar staff 
hey, I ask, I'm asking for Angela and they will get you home safely or Clive. That's really helpful, actually. I, I was unaware of that. So that's a, that's a really useful thing for parents to know, I think. I think that whole idea of, you know, ultimately with your kids, you're just saying, look, we, we want you to be alive and we want you to be safe. And, you know, as you say, if a call comes or you need help, of course, we're going to drop everything. Um, you know, ask no questions. We're not going to, bath, you know, bother you with questions all the way home. We're just going to come and get you and drive home and talk about it when we need to sort of thing. But but to be safe and and, and to, be, <laughs> to be healthy is the key, isn't it? You've given us so much um, wisdom. And uh, what, I, what I would just love to ask is sort of almost put it simply, what are the key choices that we want to be or parents want to be, you know, perhaps working with their children on during this time of lockdown, um, that, that when, the, you know, when the doors do open again and they are able to go around, that these kind of things are being covered off. What are the key choices that, that teenagers need to be making the right choices? Practice kindness and practice discretion. Very few students understand this concept of discretion because people put anything online. It's, it's crazy. And it's also very egocentric instead of thinking about other people. When you practice discretion on and offline, you're taking better care of yourself. Have the discussion at the dinner table in the car about being careful what you share. Number two, mutual respect and mutual consent. If you have these two things in place, Bob's your uncle, embark on that relationship. And then for the younger people, we really like these building blocks, friendship, romance, and intimacy. When you're ready to start flirting with somebody, you, you're friends with them, you get romantic and you learn how to, um, what, what you like, you, you, you gain trust and then you can kiss. Friendship, romance, and intimacy. If it makes me sound like a middle-aged hippie, that's okay because I am. Wow, you've given us a lot to chew on, Ali and Dana. Thank you so much for everything you've said. I think we've learned an awful lot from that, and I think parents will find it really, really helpful. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And if any parents listening are interested in learning more about our work, please visit www.therapproject.co.uk. been listening to Talking Teenagers. Music has been by Rue Paynes. Editing by George Purvis and James Certin. For more information about I Can and I Am Charity, who provide presentations and resources and help build self-confidence in young people, visit their website at icanandiam.com. Be your soul.